When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Moments ago, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer acknowledged that the president believes three to five million votes were illegally cast in November. You won the election. What are you complaining about? There is no widespread evidence of massive voter fraud. And there is a reason they are providing no evidence. There is no evidence. It is not true. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the man who says he might just declare martial law in Chicago if the mayor doesn't get its murder rate down. That would be Commandante Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So here's what's worrying me today. Well, a lot of things are worrying me today, but here's something that I think other people should be thinking about more. It's that Donald Trump has a clear strategy for manipulating the press. That strategy involves giving access to his sycophants and flatterers at Fox News while weaponizing his Twitter account against CNN and other news organizations that cover him honestly. He demonizes real journalists as dishonest people and dismisses anyone he doesn't like as a purveyor of fake news. And on issues that are totally clear-cut, like whether voting fraud is a genuine phenomenon, it isn't, he sows massive confusion. But the press, at least so far, doesn't have a strategy for dealing with Donald Trump. Part of the problem is that our heads are still spinning. We've never had a president who didn't accept the existence of objective truth. We don't know how to make him recognize that reality has an existence independent of his preferences. It's like we're suddenly covering a post-structuralist literary theorist, albeit one with orange hair and a low golf handicap. As a result, the media is getting caught up in side debates about issues like whether to call Trump's lies lies, or whether it should stage a boycott of his horseshit-peddling press secretary, Sean Spicer. Because news organizations are fierce competitors, it's hard for them to get together to defend their institutional interests or to act in concert. The press needs a better plan for dealing with this new administration. I'll be back to talk about that with the press critic Jay Rosen right after we do the tweets. I will ask for a major investigation into voter fraud, including those registered to vote in two states, those who are illegal, and even those registered to vote who are dead, and many for a long time. Depending on the results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. 
Congratulations to Fox News for being number one in inauguration ratings. They were many times higher than fake news, CNN. Public is smart. If Chicago doesn't fix the horrible carnage going on, 228 shootings in 2017 with 42 killings up 24% from 2016. I will send in the feds. Big day planned on national security tomorrow. Among many other things, we will build the wall. My guest today is Jay Rosen. He's a professor of journalism at New York University. He's the author of the Press Think blog, where he writes press criticism. And uh, I should also say, although it will be after the show airs, he is hosting an event tonight at NYU where Julia Turner and I from Slate, David Remnick of The New Yorker, a few other journalists are going to be discussing the same thing I'm about to talk to him about today, that is how the press should handle Donald Trump. Jay, welcome to Trumpcast. Well, thank you very much, Jacob. So your last piece on Press Think, which got a lot of notice, was called Send in the Interns. It's even a hashtag going around. Explain the idea of sending in the interns. The hashtag is send the interns. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, But uh, the idea is that, as we saw on Saturday with uh, Sean Spicer's first event in the press room, Journalists are being used by Trump as hate objects, and they don't necessarily have to cooperate with that. Uh, On top of that, I think most people understand that the real stories and the more important stories are going to happen at quite a distance from the briefing room. And so uh, rather than ignore it or pull out entirely, because every once in a while there could be news there, I suggested send your junior people to the White House and your more experienced people send out into the field to practice outside in rather than inside out reporting. So that's the idea behind send the interns. Jay, that's good advice. In fact, it's such good advice. It would have been good advice for the last 40 years Mm -hmm. when journalists have been hanging around that press room, getting spoon fed, getting effectively press releases, engaging in this kind of back and forth with the press secretary when the real news, of course, is in the agencies and everywhere else. I mean, Yes, we should we should de-emphasize the press room, but not just because Donald Trump is using the press as props, but just because it's been a waste of time forever. It has been a waste of time forever, and you could have made this argument at any point in those 40 years, as you said. However, there are some special things going on here. One is Trump has been projecting hatred at journalists and at the press as an institution throughout his campaign. And it's tied into another thing about his political style in which the whole idea of a common world of facts and um, the notion of evidence-based argument is itself under attack by Trump and his political style and among his supporters. And it's clear that the standards of evidence that are going to be used in the briefing room are far lower than previously, even though 
spin and misdirection plays and shading truth were always part of a press secretary's uh, arsenal and happened all the time when claims are made like illegal immigrants swung the popular vote total without evidence at all and Sean Spicer defends them, that's the kind of thing that would have caused a problem in previous administrations. They would scramble to find the study that backs up what the press secretary said. And if they couldn't, they would correct it. Obviously, this administration doesn't care about that and, in fact, sees a kind of dividend for itself in the screeching and screaming and uh, controversy that follows from these misstatements. So there are additional reasons why staying around for that kind of abuse isn't such a great idea. I'm starting to think that this Trump uh, squirrel strategy is intentional. I was skeptical of that. I mean, I thought he was just venting emotionally. But it sure does seem effective when he gets everybody to pay attention to what are ultimately irrelevant issues as much as he's lying about them, about crowd size or even his his slander about illegal uh, illegal voting fraudulent voting because what he's distracting from is real policy that's taking place you know his announcement that he's going to order the building of the wall that he's going to order restrictions on immigration from muslim countries i mean it's you know when the press's focus is so divided mm-hmm. it's very hard to separate the big issues from the small issues the you know the signal from the noise as i kind of said on the last show yeah i think that's a a big part of it it's also ultimately um difficult to decide what is intentional and what is just a byproduct of his craziness or um, completely improvised. But when you think about it, it doesn't really matter that much. It's what is the effect of the way that he operates. Um, And I think another effect of the way he operates and the way his press operation goes is to generate a lot of confusion, not just distraction, but confusion. When you have the press secretary saying there are studies showing illegal immigrants accounted for the popular vote, and uh, lots of people say there are no such studies for people who are paying intermittent attention to politics, it just sounds like a lot of confusion. And manufacturing confusion is slightly different than distraction, but it ends up having the same effect, which is to drive people away from politics and also to lessen public scrutiny of what is really going on. So I think this is also involved in the argument for paying less attention to the briefing room and, of course, to Trump's Twitter feed. So I want to get at what's really different here. I mean, you use this phrase that Trump is using the press as a hate object, which I think is a good way of talking about it. But just, you know, to put this in some context, I mean, didn't Richard Nixon use the press as a hate object? You know, he had an enemies list. Spiro Agnew was out demonizing the press in very colorful terms. And Nixon wasn't the only president who hated the press. I mean, Clinton hated the press. Bill Clinton hated the press a lot for a lot of his presidency. You know, in, in some ways, it's a, just a recurring theme of relations between presidential administrations and media. What's what's really different now? That's true. Um, Sparrow Agnew's 1970 speeches inaugurated this style of uh, culture war on the right. And you can see uh, Trump's campaign and now his administration as the culmination of more than 40 years of of this. Uh, I think 
What makes it different is several things. One is it's hatred of the press, resentment of the press, coupled with this attack on the notion of common facts, the dumping of evidence-based reasoning, which didn't begin with Trump, but is hugely a part of his uh, political style, and the fact that there are many alternative sources of information that don't care about just making stuff up, and just the growth of the right-wing noise machine, including talk radio intersecting with these fake news sources online, intersecting with Trump's own constant misstatements and lying with the put down of facts, the put down of evidence. And at a certain point, it kind of congeals into a fact-free world, which is why people keep using these very awkward and ugly phrases like post-truth and post-fact, which don't actually tell us anything, but they're just almost like cries of desperation for something to describe what's happening here. And in some way, reality is just a weaker force in politics, even though it was never all that strong of a force. So I think there there is a culmination here. I think there's like another level it's been taken to, but it, it is in no way a novel phenomena. We just have to make some critical distinctions. Yeah. I mean, one debate in, in journalism right now is obviously what kind of language to use to describe this, as you were saying. And, you know, the New York Times again this week used the term lying mm-hmm. in a headline on the front page. The Wall Street Journal has decided not to use the term lying. We're, I mean, that's an interesting debate. Do you think we should call Trump's lies lies or should we call them something else? I don't have a strong view on that. To me, it's fine if you say this is untrue or he made a false statement. And if some people are squeamish about saying lying because they can't guess what his motivation is, that to me doesn't make a lot of difference as long as it is made clear that the president of the United States, the commander in chief, is putting out false information and that lots of people know it's false. Because in the past, it's not the president's never lied, but it was agreed that it would be bad if they did. And uh, that's what's breaking down. So I don't care so much about using the word lie. Lots of people do argue about that. I think it is interesting that news organizations like the New York Times have decided in this way, and perhaps others, to make a break with past practice and that Trump is different. I think that is what counts because um, that's where we need to go. Do you think we need more solidarity in the media? I mean, Trump is obviously uh, picking favorites and enemies. You know, one day he hates CNN, another day he hates NBC. He's using his Twitter feed to attack them and in horrible terms. But, you know, he's saying Fox is great. And, you know, there's, there is a divide and conquer idea as part of what they're doing. The press isn't very good at sort of getting together. I mean, these are competitive news organizations. Do they, do they need to present, present more of a common front and a common face to the Trump people? I think there are times when that would help, um, especially when they manipulate uh, the press through background briefings and allow people to uh, influence journalists without uh, accountability. Um, but this institution is, is a very weak institution. It is correct to call the national press an institution, I think, but it's 
barely there in the sense that it has no recognized leaders. It, it can't act as an entity in any easy way. Um, it's uh, more of a herd of independent minds than an actual group with organization. Uh, the uh, institutions that it does have to coordinate, like the White House Correspondents Association, are themselves weak. And in the case of the WHCA, not just weak, but almost comic with its uh, annual dinner. And so it's very hard for the press to act in any way. It's very easy to act upon it. But when you say, uh, Jacob, that it's a very competitive institution, that's true in some ways. In other ways, it's not true. Competition in news tends to mean everyone does the same thing and then they try to beat the other to the story. A better competition would be if everybody had a different way of covering the White House, so we had a diverse world of approaches. I would like to see more competition in that way, where people compete by doing it completely differently than the guy next door. Right. But I mean, a lot of the conventional or traditional news organizations are deeply uncomfortable with the idea that they are part of the story. You know, they hate this idea that they have to have an attitude towards Trump because they're feeling as well. We treat everybody the same. We cover the news. We, we're fair. We're, you know, we, we give, give both sides. And they, they very much resist the idea of some of the things you're talking about that you kind of have to, you're being demonized and you have to figure out how to respond institutionally and not just at the level of what your news organization is doing today. Sure. Just because they're uncomfortable with it doesn't mean they don't have to do it. But um, here's why they need to think about this. Well, Jack Schaefer wrote uh, last week that this is going to be a great time for journalism uh, because there's going to be so many great stories coming out of the Trump administration. Josh Marshall has also said the same thing. And I think that's true. There's going to be amazing investigations to be done here. And I think there will be spectacular revelations. they're going to start soon. However, those stories are going to emerge into a climate that is primed to attack them and uh, confuse the public about them and just create a lot of noise around them or simply override them uh, no matter how solid the proof is. And so that's why journalists have to think about how they respond is that the public for their work is being systematically undermined. And you can only ignore that for a certain time. And at a certain point, it starts to take its toll on the effectiveness of your journalism. So what levers do we have as journalists to, to make a, the accountability count? I mean, yes, you can, you're, I think that's exactly right. There's going to be massive corruption. It's already underway. In that sense, there's great journalism to be done. But if it is discredited if it's not followed up by uh, Congress and investigates anything or the cares if there's not, you know, accountability within the executive branch, all these things that are already being eroded, Mm -hmm. it could be without moment. So what's the, how do you fight back as a journalist? Well, I don't have the answer to that. I think that's a really hard problem because the environment into which these works of investigation are going to emerge has been created for the last 40 years. So it's not like you just easily get around that. However, I think the place to start is with the things that really bothered people in the 2016 election that they wanted and expected Trump to do something about. 
And I think when the press is looking for a reporting agenda that would prevent it from being swung side to side by Trump's lies and Twitter feed and these mini explosions that distract, it needs a more solid core of priorities to return to and and dedicate itself to. And the way to get them, I think, is by starting with the problems or troubles in the country that led people to vote for Trump and then to start to analyze what he's doing, how his administration is actually unfolding in comparison to those points. So that's, I don't, I don't think that's easy to do. I don't, I don't know exactly how to tell the Washington Post or CNN to, to execute on that strategy, but it has to be something like that, where there's an iron core of concerns that you are addressing in your journalism that speak to people beyond political junkies and insiders. And somehow or another, the press has to come to a reporting agenda like that. You're saying, in a way, hold him to his own standards. Say, here's here's standards. what he promised. Here's what, what he promised. promised. Yeah. That's part of it, is what he promised. And there, and there is some work already underway about that. But it's also, everyone said, kind of almost casually during the campaign, he's really tapping into something. Remember, remember those kinds of yeah. pieces? Well, it's that. It's like, okay, so what was he tapping into in the country that is real? And start to compare what he's doing to what was revealed by the 2016 campaign. And somewhere in there is the ballast needed to keep the press from swinging side to side with these eruptions. What um, You mentioned this sort of White House correspondence dinner, which, you know, is kind of like in a lot of ways a symbol of the unhealthy coziness between the press and administrations. I mean, this is another thing along with the daily briefings that, you know, I think probably should have gotten been gotten rid of a few decades ago. But I mean, is there any value to just saying, look, you know, we're not going to participate in that ritual anymore. Like just no journalist should go to that. That should that dinner should not happen this year with the president being invited. Yeah, I think that should have happened the first week. I mean, I think that should be a subtle issue by now. But the White House Correspondents Association is so weak that it can't even get it together to do that. But yes, I think there shouldn't be that event at all. When when you watch that, um, the first real press conference John Spicer had, which I guess was Monday, mm-hmm. um, I thought the press came off as pretty weak. I mean, a couple of the, a couple of journalists were working kind of interesting angles, but you know, in general, he was in the driver's seat. Nobody stood up there and said, "You lied to us over the weekend." Right. You have no credibility. Are you going to resign? What case do you have to make that we should sit here and listen to your bullshit? I mean, that's kind of what I was hoping for, that they would come really hard at him based on just clear, demonstrable untruths that he had told them and said, basically, what's the point of there being a briefing and a relationship if you lie to us? Yeah. Um, I think with especially the White House press corps, which is only one component of the Washington press corps, there is a, a almost a palpable anxiety that things are going to change, you know, everything from the briefing room itself to will it still be televised to are they going to move us out of the White House? And there's this anxiety about the routines of the job being changed on them. And I think that kind of worry 
is standing in for or replacing or papering over what should be a much more serious set of questions that the White House press corps has to deal with, like, are we seeing the onset of authoritarian rule? What happens to the press in a country where authoritarianism begins to creep up? How do we prevent that? What do we watch out for? How do we operate in a world where facts themselves are under attack? These are like huge questions. And I think instead of dealing with those or facing those, there's this attempt to assure themselves it's going to be okay because we'll still have the briefing and we'll still have our workspace and and maybe they'll be nice to us. And you could see it in that Monday event. Right. I mean, the blurring of the sort of perquisites of of covering the White House, you know, the the traditions there with the norms of democratic society. I mean, it doesn't who cares if the, you know, the AP gets the first question at the briefing. What we care about is that there are questions and truthful answers and there's a way there is a way of getting a response to things. And it's the latter that's in danger. But they do tend to get blurred together because people who've covered the White House said, well, say it's always worked this way. Right, exactly. And another thing here that I think is getting too little attention is that the White House itself and the the briefing room and that lectern with the seal of the President of the United States and the words, the White House behind it, are a communication stage of unrivaled power in the world. And one of the best and most potent tools of the presidency is that room. And what Trump is going to do and what Spicer are going to do is they're going to essentially ruin or waste away that asset. It's it's actually a component of American power, as is the press corps itself. When the press accompanies the president on foreign trips and there is a press conference where reporters get up and ask at least somewhat challenging questions with foreign heads of state and the U.S. president in the same room – One of the messages of that ritual is to those leaders, we have a free press. Our press gets to ask questions. They are not on the team. They are independent. That's a very important component of soft power, as is the briefing room itself. And the fact that Trump is just sort of laying that all to waste should concern people who care about American power. But that gets all lost when we delve into trivialities like – you know, is the briefing going to happen every day and who's got a pass to it and so forth. Right. So it would be really nice to see the press fighting back in some effective way. I mean, obviously, the big issue is preventing authoritarianism. But what's a small expression of that issue? I mean, what's a thing reporters can do to stop the administration from abusing it and taking advantage in, in the way it is? What's a thing they can say no to? Well, um, in addition to not necessarily showing up where they're expected, which I think is my best advice to the press, the other thing is it's not what they can say no to, it's what they can say yes to, is I think they have to make it really clear to everybody in the executive branch, everybody in the federal government, everybody with information, that they are listening, that they are easy to contact, that they can be contacted securely, that their concerns, the things that are bothering them, things that are bothering their conscience um, should be publicized. And even though they do this now and they've always been open to sources, I think uh, there needs to be 
like a renewed campaign to say to everybody outside the circle of power who knows about what's going on, um, you have to tell the public and we'll help you. And uh, we're going to make it as easy as we can for you. And, and let that message go out to everybody who needs to hear it. I've been speaking to Jay Rosen of NYU's Journalism School. You can read his further thoughts on the subject at PressThink.org. Jay, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And one more thing, our live show, February 6th in Washington, D.C., at the Hamilton Theater at 7.30. There's still a few tickets available if you go to slate.com slash live. I'll be there with Jamel Bowie and Virginia Heffernan. It's going to be a great show. See you there. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I'm so excited that we are going to take a serious look at voter fraud. This investigation is going to be amazing. And I have to tell you something. I know that Steve Mnuchin, tremendous guy, tremendous. He's going to sail through and get confirmed so quickly, I have to tell you. He is registered to vote in two states. I found this out today, and I have to tell you something. I think it's tremendous. I think it's fantastic that he's registered to vote in two states. Because that means he really, really wants to vote. And he's rich. He's really, really rich. He doesn't have to vote. He's rich.